This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. This was definitely what I like to call a wait what moment. People who know me know I do this all like, wait, what? Uh, And I'm guessing it had many Democrats saying, wasn't this what we suggested months ago? We're talking about President Trump's surprise attack last night. We got the news, Tim, uh, on basically saying, wait a minute, I'm not comfortable with this $600. That was, yeah, that's supposed to go to. I most think a Americans. lot of Republican lawmakers were really surprised too. <laughs> that's what, and this is what I want to get into. Like, were they, you know, like what was happening here? Let's bring in Bloomberg News White House correspondent Jordan Fabian uh, on the phone from Washington D.C. So, Jordan, where were you when that headline crossed? Well, I was just sitting in my home office uh, wrapping up some odds and ends. That's and what you thought. The, exactly, wrapping up, right? Exactly, yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, dinner's coming soon. Not, not so fast. Uh, and and uh, that's what the president put his uh, video on Twitter. Unbelievable. Um, so, uh, what are we? First of all, did this really truly catch Republicans all on surprise or by surprise? And I should say, the House GOP to hold a call at three p.m. about the next steps on stimulus—a headline just crossing. Were they completely caught off guard? Yeah, to my knowledge, this took uh, even people on the president's own team by surprise. I mean, you had. Uh, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, who was the president's chief negotiator on this package, just praising the bill just hours before the president put out this video. I'll, I'll note, too, that the, many of the president's uh, senior advisors are out of town right now for the holidays. So uh, the White House kind of thin-staffed, uh, you know, the president uh, by himself also meeting with some of these uh, conservatives from the House and, and from outside who've been egging him on on this effort to overturn the election. And it's possible that, you know, this stimulus package and their objections to it came up in those meetings as well and, and influenced the president. So what's the likely outcome here, Jordan? I mean, what, what happens next? What happens now? Well, that's the $900 billion question, right? And it, it's hard to know because the president really hasn't said uh, if he's going to veto this or not. So we're all kind of waiting to hear if he intends to follow through uh, on his threat to uh, not sign this bill. Uh, he hasn't really given us any indication yet, but... You know, I'll, I'll note that there's some key deadlines coming up. You know, unemployment benefits, the expanded benefits are expiring on Monday. And, and, and benefit and, and the funding for the federal government is also expiring on Monday. And right. that's a key part of this package, too. So you have all these deadlines coming up, not to mention all the Americans who have been just eager to have this aid for months now. I don't even know what to ask you because I feel like I'm just kind of blown away by this. Um, what's interesting is this is largely what Democrats were pushing for months ago, right? A larger individual payment. Yes, and this speaks to the fact that the president himself wasn't really personally involved in these negotiations. And he could have, if he wanted $2,000 checks, he could have raised this at any point during the talks, and he didn't. And, and he sort of left his negotiators to agree to the $600 amount. And then after the, the pie is fully cooked, he, he comes out and says, well, I don't think this is enough uh, as far as the stimulus checks go. So it's not really how the negotiation process is supposed to work, to say the least. So could the government get shut down in a couple of days? Yes. If the president doesn't sign this, this measure, it's possible you know, the, the government funding uh, would lapse on 
December 28th. And if there's not some kind of short-term stopgap or, you know, this bill doesn't become law, then there would be a partial shutdown of government agencies. Which is, okay, so what would that mean for the fight against the pandemic? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, it it kind of depends on you know, what the administration's guidance is, whether they can designate that maybe as an emergency function and allow it to continue. But, uh, you know, as we've seen, even under those circumstances, when you know, certain functions are able to go ahead during shutdowns, you know, it's not quite fully staffed. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people who aren't working or not allowed to work. So uh, it could add some complications to the process, which is already, I would say, you know, suffering from some hiccups uh, as far as the vaccine distribution goes. So is there a realistic chance that that the American people could actually see better benefits here from this stimulus? And I'm not just talking about these direct payments. I'm talking about other elements of it as well, because it's not just these direct payments that will or will not happen, depending on what the president does. Yeah, no, you, Tim, you bring up a good point, which is that there's been this almost myopic focus on, on the direct checks. And while that's important, this bill has a lot more in it, which is money for school reopening, money for vaccine distribution, those expanded unemployment benefits we're talking about, uh, loans for airlines and small businesses who really suffered uh, because of all the shutdowns and restrictions. And so if this package doesn't get approved in one form or another, all of that uh, goes away and the country is left shorthanded economically in the response to the pandemic. All right. So what are your expectations? Your bosses said what, Jordan? Uh, really sorry. I know it's going to we're coming up on the holiday, but you're going to keep working because we're gonna, expecting stuff through the weekend. I'm just curious, what kind of guidance are you getting uh, from your team, but also from maybe uh, from Washington? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm just about to fly down to uh, West Palm Beach, Florida with, with President Trump, hmm. uh, where he's supposed to spend a Christmas. And it's sort of a curious move, right, to kind of nuke these talks and then uh, jet off for for a holiday weekend uh, down in South Florida, uh, but all the indications are that that trip is a go. So uh, right after I'm done with you guys, I'm going to get into a car and head to Andrews Air Force Base. Well, have a safe flight. I, yeah. It seems like you are going to be working during that time. Um, I just want to end with with this brief three martini lunch part because that was a surprise to see in the video, yeah. and the president like his one other demand was we need to extend this for more than two years, which was really surprising to me. This was a special issue for him. I mean, this yeah. is really important to him. Right? But it makes like, no sense because it you're not going to go to a restaurant if right. COVID exists. Right, exactly. Which just shows he's kind of thinking about things very differently right. Right, than everybody else. Um, you're absolutely right. Like That to me came out of the blue. Um, so something we're following, uh, no doubt about. Jordan Fabian, thank you so much. Wish you well. Safe travels as well. Bloomberg News White House correspondent. This is Bloomberg Business Week. With Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Well, 2020 has been a year of so many wrongs and wrongdoings. It's a year that Bloomberg Business Week reported uh, earlier this year would be a lost year, and that indeed it has. And yet, amid all of the loss, heartbreak, and confusion, and living through a health pandemic, the likes of which was the worst that we've ever seen in our lifetime, something actually went really, really right this year, Tim. It did. We got a vaccine. We did indeed. And that is this week's cover story. Bloomberg News U.S. healthcare team leader Drew Armstrong with us on the phone in Atlanta. Along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Jill Weber on the Access Line in Brooklyn. Great headline, um, and I love the cover, Jill, uh, the miracle on ice that is or that are the COVID 19 vaccines. Yeah, and congratulations to Drew um, on his first cover story. It turns out, which is which wow. is uh, which is great for him. Um, yeah. So so yeah, the, you know, so much on it has just gone terribly terribly wrong this year, and I think we all recognize that. And this is our good business issue. And it was a chance to actually reflect on 
on a few things that actually were remarkable. Um, and not least of which is what the vaccine represents, which is this Herculean undertaking um, that was, you know, coordinated from multiple places. I mean, you had government doing something uh, very right in this regard, but also, you know, scientists who were basically doing their job and yeah. doing it, doing it really fast. Um, and, and that was sort of what we turned to Drew about and said, by the way, let's just step back and like marvel at what was just achieved here. We had never seen a vaccine uh, come to fruition this fast. Can you help us kind of put a bow around that? And, and um, ultimately, uh, that bow looked like dry ice uh, <laughs> with a little vial of liquid. And, you know, no, it is not real, uh, real, real vaccine juice. Uh, but Miracle on Ice was the, the cover line. I don't know if that's the and Drew, we did try. It, we did. We did try to get the real bottle. Right, Drew? Yeah, I mean, we were, I know, calling around the evening before the photo shoot, seeing if anybody would give us a empty, to be clear, um, bottle of uh, Pfizer's uh, vaccine, which is um, which was uh, being used most most heavily um, uh, at the time. Unfortunately, no luck on that. Kind of glad they didn't, because I'm hoping they're using the vial for the vaccine. Just going to put it out there, guys. So, so tell us about though. This story is remarkable because the one of the big things that you point out, Drew, is that the science was there. We were very lucky that the MNR messenger RNA science was already in the works for several years. Yeah, this is a technology that has been kind of kicking around in the biopharmaceutical world for a number of years, and people have always thought it held a tremendous amount of promise, you know, it essentially turns the idea is that it turns cells into little protein factories. And so you can kind of turn them into little mini drug manufacturers themselves, which is you know, great theoretically, but it hadn't really you know, delivered in a big, big, big way um, yet. Moderna is probably the, the most out in front company with this, but there had long been this idea that you know, you could use it to rapidly make um, vaccines in a pandemic because of the speed with which you can um, design and begin producing these things. A lot of flu vaccines, people don't know this, they're, they're essentially grown inside eggs. Um, it, it is, and, and it can take quite a long time to actually develop um, and test these things. But, you know, the mRNA vaccines, they were designed in just a couple of days after um, Moderna and the NIH uh, got a copy of the virus's genetics um, from uh, downloaded from from China. So it's remarkable how fast um, this can happen and this technology um, getting things out front as quickly as it did. I was shocked to read that, Drew, that it took only a couple of days. Yeah. So where is the when it comes to vaccine development, where where does the time hiccup? Is it the clinical testing? Is it the is it the um, is it the actual manufacturing of it? Where's the bottleneck? Yeah, that's a great question. And this is something I actually had a wonderful conversation with um, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar about. He's a former Eli Lilly executive um, who worked there in the, in the drug industry for a long time. And one of the things that we talked about in our discussion, and this is common throughout the pharmaceutical industry, is that when you're looking at laying out hundreds of millions of dollars or eventually billions of dollars potentially to bring a, a drug or a vaccine through trials, 
you know, you don't do everything at once. You do the initial preclinical work and then you pause and you look at the results and you say, okay, let's go ahead to phase one. And then you do that work and then you pause and you go ahead and you say, okay, let's go ahead to phase two. And, you know, so on and so forth up through clinical trials. And then you need to start thinking about, okay, we need to build manufacturing. How much do we need to build? This is a long process with a lot of consecutive steps. What happened with warp speed was essentially it took all of those and compressed them all down kind of into one big race from the word go. And it said, okay, we're going to build manufacturing at the same time. We're going to run the phase three, you know, phase two and phase three trials. We're going to arrange short pre-purchase deals for these things. Basically, compressing steps that typically would take years and years and years to be due, partly because of the risk and high chance of failure involved with drug development, saying do it all at once and we'll put a bunch on the line here. Um, you know, most of the drug companies involved were part of that program, Operation right. Warp Speed, to do that. Pfizer was not technically, but did very similar um, work in terms of compressing its timelines and was still first across the line here. So it's also worth mentioning that one of the other significant things that makes it worthy of a, uh, the good business issue here, Drew, is that you know, a year ago, um, pharma wasn't known for saving the world. Uh, it was better known for things like Purdue Pharma, which um, uh, obviously um, played, a, played a part in uh, in sort of the epidemic that we've seen um, in opioids. Uh, also, Martin Chiarelli. Uh, so how big of a, a redemption moment does the industry uh, believe this to be? Yeah, I find this to be hilarious. So there's this Gallup poll that comes out every year of how people think about various business sectors um, and do they have positive or negative views of them. And actually, the two bottom on the ranking, the only places that have actually majority negative views among the American public are the pharmaceutical industry and the federal government. And that is who teamed up to actually get this done. Um, You know, I, I think if you're the drug industry, to go from being kind of, you know, the face of, I mean, God, God, gosh, you guys have been attacked in Congress for high prices. I mean, just everything under the sun, you know, to have that be your reputation to, and then turn into, hey, these are the guys who are going to save the world. Um, you know, that's about as, as uh, big a turnaround as you can possibly imagine. And it really is a, a credit um, to the science expertise and the business expertise and the kind of combination of all those factors um, which have had, you know, a pretty rough knock over the last uh, couple of years. Um, but getting those folks all, all aiming at the same goal as quickly as possible, it shows you what is possible when you take all of those resources and aim them at the right target. Um, I also just reflecting on, on life a year ago, um, I, this it made me realize that, Drew, a year ago right now, um, Business Week published a cover story about SoftBank, um, which was a gigantic, uh, the image was a gigantic pile of money on fire. <laughs> it said season's greetings from SoftBank, which at the time had just been on the other side of the WeWork debacle. Uh, and I'm realizing that we had a year ago a fire on the cover and this right now we have Miracle nice. on Ice. So the yeah. year has been a song of fire and ice. Totally, totally. And I'm just going to say there's a line in the story about Drew and his family uh, in their midsize SUV uh, trying to keep their bubble uh, and stay away from COVID. Uh, Anyway, it's a great read. We'll put it out on Twitter. Uh, Our thanks to Jill Weber and Drew Armstrong. It is the cover this week. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. All right, I'm going to just tell you that um, 
Carol Master, first of all, along with Bloomberg Creek Take anchor Tim Stenevec. Tim, this story was has really been our most read story all day until Brexit kind of <laughs> squeezed it out a little bit. And then we had uh, Governor Cuomo coming out and extending the eviction ban uh, in uh, New York. Uh, so obviously important stories. But this story is fascinating in that it talks about the year that uh, was when it comes to Wall Street. And it's been, you know, earlier in the week, we talked about a story that great year for Wall Street, but not a great year for humans. I mean, that has been a big theme here. Yeah. Can you imagine back in March thinking that this would be a great year for Wall Street? No, not at all. And uh, it's really pretty remarkable to on a day when we see the Nasdaq at another record. This story that's on the Bloomberg, it's by the dynamic Bloomberg News team of Max Abelson, Sally Blakewell, Shaheen uh, Nazarapur, and Kathy Burton. So let's get into it with Bloomberg News finance team leader, Sally Sally Bakewell. She is on the phone in New York City. Sally, I'm so glad you could come on to talk with us about this because it is really one of those things that we keep scratching our head about and talking about kind of that disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street. So tell us about the reporting that you guys all did. Hi, thanks for having me, Carol. Yeah, and, um, yeah it, it's really interesting how this story pulls together so many different parts of Wall Street. We have the credit markets we have, which led to, you know, um, the ability of companies to access them and pay themselves dividends at levels not seen for years. We have trading profits because of volatility in the market. Um, we have the SPAC boom. Um, we can, and hedge funds, of course, and even some consumer related companies like mortgage um, providers, they've all been able to ride this wave. Um, and the re- part of the reason is because of the unprecedented stimulus that the um, Federal Reserve uh, provided to the market in in March to avoid financial catastrophe. Uh, But as as well as lifting, you know, the credit markets, it also had a knock-on effect of uh, bolstering the stock stock markets because they saw that, you know, the mass insolvency of lots of companies was off the table. And so anyone that was able to kind of access the markets in, in this way was able to benefit. And of course, that contrast that, as you said in, uh, earlier, with the experiences of you know the average American, and right. it's very different. You know, their stimulus checks have run out. Um, they're facing far less, far fewer options um, when it comes to finance. How much credit here goes to Jerome Powell? So much, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, yeah, I yeah, I, I think I think so much, but I won't try and hit that beautiful high note. Um, <laughs> I don't know where that came from. I'll never do it again. And that was just so random. Anyway, go ahead, Sally. Yeah, yeah no, total credit and credit is due because admittedly this helped avert so many companies going, you know, succumbing to bankruptcy because they couldn't get much needed liquidity, which of course saved jobs. Um, so, you know, we keep that in mind that he indeed did help avert financial disaster. But the monetary policy solutions that, that the markets got were perhaps not matched by the fiscal stimulus that no. the Americans got. Yeah, I mean, especially Fair. not today. You know, right. we saw especially from. Especially not today. Yeah. Um, I, I do wonder about lessons learned from the financial crisis and if there were any quick lessons learned from the financial crisis and why that Jerome Powell and the Fed acted so quickly with stimulus. What can you tell us? Um, yeah, I think that was that's precisely what happened. They acted faster and to a bigger magnitude um, because 
they saw how the financial crisis, the last financial crisis went down and wanted to act in ways that ensured that didn't happen happen again. And I think um, as we, we quote um, uh, Schenkman Capital Management executive in, in this story who says, well, when, when the Fed steps in, um, investors have seen time and time again that there is a way to, to profit. You know, um, they they buy the dip, and this is happening again here, and they've managed to to profit from it in one way or another. I love the story in that. You know, you guys, as always, just including some kind of unbelievable statistics. You talk about the five biggest U.S. investment banks: J.P. Morgan, B of A, Citi, Goldman, Morgan Stanley. Now set to post their first their first $100 billion year for trading revenue in more than a decade. And then you also talk, yeah. by the end of the year, Americans will have taken out a record $4.4 trillion worth of home mortgages. I have a sister-in-law, uh, Darlene, who works in the mortgage, the home mortgage business, and she's like, they have been so crazy busy. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. kind of off the charts, right? And then same thing when you talk about the IPO market or the SPAC market, There's, it's just been kind of one whoa statistic after another. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a year of these crazy dichotomies, you know, um, and you mentioned mortgages. Like, while that we're seeing records um, in in the sort of mortgage sales, we're also seeing records in terms of, you know, defaults on them. So right. it's kind of these strange things are happening at once, which is the essence of this story. You've got these and the optics are not great. You know, you've got yeah. Wall Street profiting. You've got Americans suffering and, and not doing so well um and you know the, the overall vibe from that is is not is not a good one and in a, in a year of the pandemic um yeah it, it is it is a, a it's a very stark kind of conclusion to draw um in 2020 right and there's lots of money that big you know publicly held companies have have been able to access really cheaply and then they're able to go back and basically, you know, buy back their stock, which just boosts their share prices. Uh, there's a quote I just have to share with everybody, um, or at least a line in this story. Expectations are so high that a trader who got two and a half million last year has vowed to leave one of the nation's biggest banks if he doesn't get significantly more for 2020. So just that's kinda, a bonus. That's a that is a bonus. Yeah. Um, Sally, amazing reporting. Um, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, Bloomberg News finance team leader Sally Bakewell on the phone in New York City. This is Bloomberg Business Week. With Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. This week in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week, Bloomberg Business Week uh, economics editor Peter Coy gives us something to think about when it comes to a company's responsibility to multiple stakeholders and taking into account things like ESG factors when it comes to business and investing decisions. Bottom line, he says, backlash against uh, prioritizing anything other than profit. So let's get into it with Peter. He joins us on the phone in New Jersey. I'm so glad you were able to come back today because we touched upon the story, Tim and I, with you yesterday and then got interrupted by, I believe, President-elect Biden. We got Bidened. We got Bidened. (laughs) So tell us about this story. I think it's a really thoughtful one, especially when I feel like there's been, Peter, so much momentum, so much conversation about a company has to think about multiple stakeholders. So take it away. Yeah. Well, it's certainly true that ESG investing is on the rise. Um, There's a survey by Deloitte that found that something like uh, 26% of Professionally managed assets in the U.S. had ESG mandates as of 2018, uh, versus only 11 percent in 2012. That's a pretty rapid increase, and as you said it's engendering a backlash. And we're seeing it in the Trump administration. Three different agencies are taking shots at ESG in different ways. Uh, on the final 
months of uh, uh, Trump's term in office. Now, Biden may try to reverse some of them, not all, but in any case, it represents, uh, obviously, the Trump administration doing this because they're feeling some heat, and that's probably coming mostly from corporate America that is resisting some of the ESG mandates. So in corporate America, where is the backlash coming from? Because I thought ESG was all the rage right now. Well, that's, I mean, it's true. It's, it's a mixed picture, I think, and that's a fair point. There are a lot of companies that are totally on board with ESG, but in some cases they just don't like being pinned down. As, they want to have sort of the freedom to do it their way. Well, anyway, to, to give you some examples, the, the most stringent restrictions on ESG are coming from the Labor Department, which makes a certain amount of sense because the Labor Department is in charge of pensions. Mm-hmm. And naturally, pensioners are vulnerable to bad investing, and they ha- they're relying on that money for their retirement. They really are, don't directly have anything to say over where the money is invested. So the Labor Department bends over backwards to say that the money should be invested only according to uh, pecuniary considerations, money, uh, not ESG. The ESG could be used only if it's, there's a two exactly equal investments from a profitability point of view. ESG could be the tiebreaker, and they expect that to be a rare situation. So it's interesting. Uh, there's a line in your story, Peter. Uh, a cynical take on ESG is that it's a way for CEOs and boards to avoid accountability. If profits come in below expectations, they can point to some wind farm as an explanation, like, hey, yeah. we yeah. did the right thing, but it hurt profits. Right. Yeah. So I have a quote in the article from a woman named Barnali Chowdhury, who's at uh, UCL in London, uh, kind of on this point, saying, you don't want ESG to be sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card for uh, companies, you know, just wave your hands and say, oh, uh, you know, we're, we're answered to multiple stakeholders, <laughs> not just shareholders. Well, you know, I think about Jamie Dimon, right, at the business ra- of the business roundtable and, of course, of J.P. Morgan. Like, you know, when he made that statement about, listen, companies have to have multiple stakeholders, I think everybody was like, yeah, it's, it's shareholders, it's employees, it's your community, it's a lot of things that we need to think about. But I do wonder, you know, ultimately, if you're a publicly held company, right, ultimately you still answer to your shareholders. Yeah, well, Carol, this is such a deep issue. We could talk about it all day long because there's so many nuances here but there is that argument but then the argument of the SG people is look shareholders could collectively decide that they want some objective other than just making money they they collectively want to do something about climate change for example mm-hmm. and the argument would be fine if that's what they vote right they choose a board of directors that wants that if they vote in proxies for that kind of thing then they're certainly entitled to so well, is is Milton Friedman right here, right? The social responsibility of business is to increase its profits. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like, uh, there, there is, it's a very clean storyline, the Milton Friedman one. What I'm getting at is that there's a lot of ambiguity yeah. in, in corporate law, and maybe that's not an entirely bad thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe we need to learn to live with a certain amount of ambiguity. And I, I tell the story of going back to Barnali Chowdhury citing uh, a 18th century play called Servant of Two Masters, the servant named Truffaldino, who somehow manages to, by scrambling left and right, serve two different masters, and fairly ably as well. Yeah, and I guess, you know, time will tell in terms of how well 
companies kind of juggle both of this. Um, Peter, it's like just a great historical account. I love how you start off with uh, Henry Ford and what yeah. he did originally. It's yeah. just a great way to kind of talking to it I said to I was kind of teasing this for our weekend show and I said this is something that you can discuss virtually with your friends and family uh, during the holidays because I do think it's a it's a just a bunch of great talking um, points Love for it chew over yeah there really is <laughs> with some nice red wine you just got to kind of throw yeah. that in there and maybe uh, over zoom too and yeah well virtually absolutely yeah, got to do it safely Peter Coy um, have a safe holiday a you good too. holiday and we'll talk to you um, hopefully maybe next week or if not definitely of course in the new year Bloomberg economics editor Peter Coy this story is in the current issue of mag- uh, of the magazine uh, hitting newsstands online and on the Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car I turn on the radio How about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just about 11 minutes left into today's trading session, getting ready to wrap up uh, this day of Wednesday. Time for the drive to the close. Dave Donabedian is Chief Investment Officer at CIBC Private Wealth Management. Uh, $74 billion in assets overall and under management. And he joins us on the phone once again from Baltimore. Dave, how are you? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing okay. Um, listen, it's a tough time, as we know, as we, we're getting through this next wave of COVID. And I do wonder, though, you know, we continually talk about this disconnect between what's happening on Wall Street versus kind of the rest of the world, especially with, once again, a relief package on hold again because of the president. Um, how do you see the market environment right now? And, and what do you anticipate how it carries over into 2021? I think the market environment is, is really focused on kind of continuing to do the, the, the great look-through, which is uh, to kind of define 2020, looking through all of the short-term distress related to, to COVID and social unrest and, and a divisive election, and looking to the impact that, that both fiscal and monetary policy are going to have out in 2021, which we think is going to lead to uh, actually a very strong uh, spurt of activity in the economy and in corporate earnings. So to, to us, that's the the big picture in the short term here, uh, I do think that this $900 billion fiscal package will get passed. Uh, if, you, if you kind of uh, play out the, the situation the president's in, he, he wants more for working class and middle class Americans. But if he doesn't sign this bill, they will get nothing. It's, so, it's so ultimately, it's likely to happen. Well, it's so interesting, Dave, to hear that you're optimistic about uh, fiscal policy here because it took so many months for members of Congress to reach this $900 billion deal only to be told last night, thanks but no thanks, by the president. What's the optimism that you have about members of Congress working together in a Biden administration to actually get something done and, and help the American people who've struggled so much? Well, I think, for, at first, I, I think this $900 billion dollop will hit, will happen. And, you know, I, I think it's not gotten, in a sense, that much attention in, in the markets. It's almost like if something isn't in the trillions anymore, it's just viewed as a rounding error. But this is going to be, uh, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars front-loaded into the economy in the first quarter. So it's going to help us get off to a, a good economic start, even with COVID surge going the wrong way. As to whether there's another, uh, you know, fiscal support package with a new Congress and, and, and a President Biden, I think that's much more open to question. First, I'm not sure that it will be needed. 
Um, but secondly, I do think you're going to see a lot of the Republicans in Congress, even though they've presided over very significant budget deficit increases the last four years, kind of revert to their deficit hawk mode as a way to, to blunt uh, you know, Biden's more fiscally active. Yeah, we haven't heard mention of that over the last four years, have we? No, exactly. What's the responsibility, though, Dave? I mean, this is the problem we keep having and talking about is the disconnect between what we're seeing between Main Street and Wall Street. Uh, You know, one of our most read stories on the Bloomberg, it's a virus update, but it talks about um, Andrew Cuomo of the state of New York, you know, extending the eviction ban. There are a lot of Americans. We've talked about it. Bloomberg has reported on kind of the fiscal cliff that so many Americans are facing, whether it's being able to stay in their home to feed their families, uh, employment benefits coming to an end. I mean, what's the responsibility, though, of kind of our investment world and our corporate world to really make sure that the rest of the population is taken care of? Well, th- there's a, a high level of responsibility, and, and you know we've all seen numerous examples of the, the disconnect between the day-to-day economy and, and the financial markets. I think what we all need to realize is that that can go on for a while, but it's ultimately unsustainable. Mm-hmm. And if we have a an economy that's not growing and significant parts of the population going backwards, not forwards, um, that will find its way into into lower asset prices and well, in a exp- stable society. Unpack that, because I think that's a really important point. It's just like we talk about ESG and climate change, that ultimately, you know, big public companies, they've got to embrace because these things are going to impact them financially, ultimately. So unpack that for me a little bit in terms of how this disconnect will ultimately find its way into asset prices. Well, I mean, if, if we go into a, I'll put it this way, before this likely additional you know, fiscal stimulus uh, package, uh, we, we were looking potentially at a GDP decline in the first quarter, meaning, you know, a, a reversal of the improvement we've begun to see in the job market and consumer spending and investment and, and so forth. So, the, you know, the absence of policy, you know, could make a huge difference here. And so that's still going to be, you know, a big part of the discussion and the debate in 2021 with a, with a new president um, and, and a new Congress. How does your outlook change for next year if Democrats gain those seats in Georgia and get control of the Senate? Yes, I I think it's it's not a binary impact on the markets, and that if if that scenario happens, you'll have a a 50-50 Senate, and and yes, Vice President Harris breaking ties, but think think about how narrow that is to to get things done. So I, I think I would still say if you look at the the um, you know campaign agenda that Joe Biden laid out, um, you know, you have to roll that back by uh, on the spending and the tax side by many trillions in terms of what could get done even in a in a 50-50 Senate. Um, I, what I would look to first, if you do get that outcome and and the Democrats win both of those seats in Georgia, I would look to the bond market actually before I'd look to the stock market. You see, you may see more of a an impact in in bond yields going up on the expectation of a more um, you know, more fiscal activity going on in the course of 2021. Um, you know, additional, uh, you know, fiscal support is not necessarily bad for the stock market. It was pretty right. good. I think we can all agree in 2020. Right. Right. I mean, we just did a story about, it's one of the most read on the Bloomberg about kind of Wall Street and just the different financial firms that have benefited big time uh, in different corners, whether it's traders, whether it's, you know, the SPAC market or SPACs specifically, whether it's uh, home mortgages. Um, 
you know, as you get ready to wrap up the year, one investment thought to maybe leave our listeners with just got about 30, 40 seconds here, Dave. Yeah, I would just say looking looking to next year, you know, we had we had a 30% rise in the stock market in 2019. We're going to do 15 or 16% this year. Uh, we think that, that stocks will outperform uh, bonds and cash again next year, but with, with probably more of a single-digit return environment because valuations are a little bit uh, a little bit stretched, but it should be another year in which stocks lead the way. Yeah, especially with all this easy and cheap money out there. Hey, Dave, thank you so much. Um, happy holidays. Happy New Year. Dave Donabedian, he's Chief Investment Officer at CIBC Private Wealth Management, $74 billion in assets under management on the phone from Baltimore. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.